Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. If you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, slash X, and TikTok. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. For our last holiday hiatus episode, we're going back to our archives once again to look at a New Year's Day that may have been one of the most pivotal moments in the Beatles' career. After just one month of being their manager... Brian Epstein arranged something that was unthinkable even weeks before. An audition with Decca, one of the UK's top record labels. So on a freezing New Year's Day in 1962, the Beatles made a treacherous trip down to London, playing a, let's call it eclectic, mix of rock standards and Lennon-McCartney originals. It didn't go so well. The Beatles lost that contract to a competitor group, Brian Poole and the Tremolos. But that first rejection may have been a key to the Beatles' whole story going forward. And not only for the Beatles, but for Brian, George Martin, and possibly even the entire British invasion movement. So on this New Year's week, we discuss another New Year's so important to the Beatles' history and ask the question, would the Beatles have become the Beatles we know if they had indeed passed the audition? I secured them an audition at Decca on New Year's Day, 1962. They came to London and stayed at the Royal Hotel paying 27 shillings a night for bed and breakfast. They were poor and I wasn't rich, but we all celebrated with rum and scotch and coke, which was becoming a Beatle drink even then. Thank you, Brian Epstein, for that lovely intro. That was Brian talking from Anthology One. And I believe I've double checked, but I think he's reading directly from his autobiography, Cellar Full of Noise, ghost written by Derek Taylor, but from Brian's own words. So we'll count it as truth. Brian started off this process of trying to get the Beatles a record deal. So he, I believe, made the promise to them when he said, I want to be your manager. I will get you a record contract. And that was one of the things they were sort of like, sure, Brian, we'll see. Wouldn't you know it, he was not even their manager one month when he started schlepping down to London to try to find them a deal. He went to Columbia, he went to Pi, he went to Phillips, he went to Oriole. All of them turned him down. The only label that even took an interest, half an interest, was DECA. Can we just pause for a minute to acknowledge how crazy and amazing that is? Yeah. Less than a month. And they didn't even have a formal contract. Like, it wasn't anything signed or anything. He was just like, yep, I'm on it. And he goes down to London and is like going to all these offices of people I'm sure he had dealt with through NEMS and that kind of thing. But not like this, not as a manager. He'd never been a fucking manager. No, and they listened to him because he bought a lot of records. So he was known as somebody who's going to spend a lot of money at these places. So they gave him the time of day. It's funny you say that because that's pretty much the biggest reason why Deco was even interested. Because they knew because of NEMS that Brian did buy a lot of records. He had a lot of pull in the Northern Territory. And so this A&R guy called Mike Smith, he's an A&R assistant to Dick Rowe, who looms very large in this legend. He comes up to see the Beatles, Cavern Club. He apparently thought they were, quote unquote, wonderful on stage. So that was a big feather in the Beatles cap because it had Decca 
and of course EMI were the two biggest labels in the UK. So for him to be like, okay, I'll come see you guys in this basement club play. And it's actually, okay, so why don't you come down for an audition on New Year's Day? And that was the plan. On a very, very cold, frigidly cold New Year's Day, they, cold. the Beatles and Neil Aspinall made a absolutely treacherous trip from Liverpool. They got lost. The trip took 10 hours. It was snowing. <laughs> it was cold. It was probably black ice all over the place. It must oh. have been terrifying. Yeah, it's funny. In Cynthia's book, John, she says that John told her that, you know, they arrived pretty late, like 10 o'clock at night. And he said, just in time to see the drunks jumping in the Trafalgar Square fountain. Welcome to London, boys. I love this story. And I think I read this on Richie Unterberger's website, that when they arrived, these two lowlifes tried to sneak into their van and smoke weed just because it was cold and they wanted to hide because it was still illegal. So they were like, oh, you know what? We're just going to like go in these guys' van with all their equipment and them having been on the road, getting lost for 10 hours. Well, at least they didn't steal anything. That's sweet. Because the Beatles hadn't met Bob Dylan yet, they didn't join him. Well, they were still little babies. Mm-hmm. People are often like, why would they audition New Year's Day? Well, it wasn't a holiday then. It wasn't a holiday in Britain in the early 60s. It was just your typical Monday morning, January 1st, 1962 at 11 a.m. God, what a terrible Monday morning because you know everybody <laughs> was partying anyway. Including Mike Smith, because he was late, because he partied too hard the night before, because New Year's Eve does. So thank you, governments of the world, for giving us this day off. Yeah, part of me feels bad for Mike Smith, because it's like, yeah, he had to roll in there all hungover and listen to this, like, band that he wasn't even jazzed about, really. Nobody was happy that day. Nobody was. Nobody was. So for the audition, you know, of course, it's John, Paul, George, and Pete. Mm. Brian was there also. They performed 15 songs in less than an hour, depending on who you believe. So some people say it was like an hour. Some people say it was like Pete Best has said it went on for hours. I wouldn't believe Pete Best. And we'll get to that in a second. (laughs) Um, But probably about an hour it took to perform these songs. We have 15 songs, at least on the recorded sessions that uh, were released. But that was released during the anthology, right? Yeah. Well, so most of them are on the anthology, but then they later covered some of the songs that they played for the Decca audition in the BBC sessions. So that's why you hear like Buddy Holly's Crying and Waiting Hoping, which George sings lead on. Some covers that they would cover later, obviously they did Money. So there are a couple of overlapping things in those 15 songs. What do you think of the audition tape? I love it. I really, I mean, I have such fond memories of hearing it on the anthology. And I love Three Cool Cats. (laughs) It's so cute. I know, I've always loved that. And it's funny because when we started talking about doing this episode and really like when I started researching it, I was like, I've never noticed certain things that people point out about these tapes because I always just thought they were so fun. Even like the Sheik of Araby, I was like, now looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, that is a weird choice. But, <laughs> you know, back when the anthology came out, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, I love that. George does such a good job on that song. George is like the superstar of these DECA auditions. That's not saying a whole lot because they all were kind of bad. But like George, he comes off the best, at least in these tapes. John and Paul, I think, were were much more nervous than you usually hear them, especially Paul. Yeah, for sure. He did that like elvis Paul Ramon sort of thing a couple of times, <laughs> which I mean, that, that's just kind of the the way you're going to sing Bessimi Mucho if someone's going to make you do that. But <laughs> Yeah, that's true. He was trying to be like suave. And yeah, exactly. Neil Aspinall had this quote, Paul couldn't sing one song. He was too nervous and his voice started cracking up. They're all worried about the red light on in the studio. 
I asked if it could be put off, but we're told people might come in if it were off. You, you what? We said. We didn't know what all that meant. They were so green. They were so scared. And then Mike Smith actually said that Paul was the worst one to own the editions. He, uh, he said the one that played the most bum notes was McCartney. Quote, unquote, I was very unimpressed with what was happening with the bass line. I mean, to be fair, Paul had only played the bass for like less than a year because Stu quit the band sometime in 61. Yeah, yeah. Being the apologist this episode. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You know, though, that for their first shout out, it's not that bad. I actually really like some of these songs because you kind of get a flavor of what they really did when they were in Hamburg, when they were at the clubs. These are strange choices, but this is what they filled their set list in with before they played mostly originals. Well, it's funny because, and I'm going to go on a little bit of a Brian rant, because one of the things people talk about with the odd choices, like you say, of the set list, like what they played for the audition, and especially things like Besame Mucho, people say that Brian sort of strong-armed them into doing songs like September in the Rain and like all these weird sort of ballady. They did Take Good Care of My Baby, which is a big hit for Bobby V, and all these weird tracks that... I don't know, some of them, like, Over the Rainbow even was was bandied about. And it's like, you can't imagine them singing these songs. And people are like, oh, Brian made them do it. That's why they didn't pass the audition, as it were. And that's why they never let Brian have input musically again in their whole career. And I'm like, people just love, love something new to blame fucking Brian for. And it's like, he never, ever made it a policy to get involved with them. He was always sort of like, hands off, let the artists do their thing. I will do the business. I don't see him at this critical moment being like, you're going to play all these schmaltzy songs. I'm sure he probably said play September in the ranks. He had listed that in his top 10 songs for 1961 and Mersey beat. So that was probably on his radar. But here's the thing. If it's on Brian Epstein's radar and he made them try to play it, like I would say like take good care of my baby will probably also fall into that category because he's running one of the most successful record stores in the UK, certainly in the Northern UK. And I'm sure he's like got his pulse on what is happening, what's doing well, what Decca might like. Like he's not doing this just sort of willy nilly to be a control freak. He's doing it because like, oh, you know, if you cover the sort of Besame Mucho's ballady Elvis sounding song, which, by the way, Decca is Elvis's distributor through RCA in the UK. So that makes sense. My point is, like, if Brian did say, OK, cover these four songs or whatever the hell he asked them to do during this, it was because he was sort of like strategically placing it so the Beatles would have that in their pocket. But people say that the Beatles were so pissed off. They were so mad. That's why they like fucked up the audition, whatever. It's like, no, they were kids. They were in like, a recording studio for the first time. Anyway, stop blaming Brian for it. I totally agree with what you say. First off, this is probably a lot of the things that they weren't doing anyway. I mean, he wasn't going to make them learn new songs. They were doing these songs. So it's not like he said, here, learn these for the audition. He chose things that were already in their catalog. If he even chose anything, what he did was he chose a range of songs that would show their potential range. So everything from Money, That's What I Want, which is, you know, you see John's really hard hard rock you see like dreamers do which is a lennon mccartney original and you see originals yeah yeah, you see another one in there too you see love of the love and hello little girl so there's three of them and then you see the lieber and stoller stuff you know kind of the motown you see even the latin stuff with besame mucho specter with you know to know her is to love her right flipped flipped. yeah exactly and it's like you also see as we just talked about the beatles cover these songs later and it's like 
oh, they really hated it so much they're going to do it again for their formal EMI album. I don't think so. Paul McCartney loved singing Till There Was You, which is the schmaltziest song from The Music Man. No joke. So, no joke. Whatever. Also, I mean, how much longer was it that they were actually in the recording studio fighting George Martin about doing that How Do You Do It song? So it's it's not like they suddenly grew a pair when they got into a real recording studio. They had the same attitude then as they did a few months later. Yeah, exactly. And I think it comes up, I'm trying to remember because I read the story uh, when we were doing our episode, which you should definitely listen to. We talk about it, I think, on that episode about when Brian tried to make them do something. This is very, very early on when he thought maybe he could. And they said, no, Brian, we're not doing it. And he was like, okay, cool. And he never made them do anything again. And he it would even go on to say, like, I would always suggest things, but the Beatles would never do anything that they wouldn't want to do. Tony Bramwell has this quote in his book where he says, Paul did Bessemer Mucha at Brian's insistence. He muttered that it was a silly ballad. We should have just done our own stuff, he said. First of all, Paul seems like he would love that song. Yeah. Um, gonna, yeah, I'm just going to put that out there. That's very like Till There Was You as Paul Ramon. I mean, come on. He loves that oh, stuff. That's like Paul Ramon at like the tippity top, right? But if he didn't want to do it, they would not have done it. Like they would just said, no, Brian, we're not doing this. Even if it is like an audition for a record label, and maybe they were sort of like, we're going to trust you, Brian. We're going to do Take Good Care of My Baby in September in the Rain and whatever the hell. If he really hated it that much, he would have pushed back a little harder. Part of his goal was to smooth out the Beatles' rough edges. And how else would you do that but sing these like nice songs that the girls like and their mothers like? And yeah. That's what Till There Was You was. It was the one that made everybody forget about their sex innuendos in, in the, some of the other songs and look at his doe eyes and his blinking and his looking up at the sky and fall in love with, with this innocent little boy. I mean, it, it was very effective for them to sing songs like this. And they knew it. I don't think that there would have been a world where Brian could have forced them to do it. Plus, they probably figured that, you know, Brian had talked to Decca. Brian had interfaced with them. Brian had brought the guy to the Cavern Club to see them. You know, if Brian had recommendations, like, sure, we're going to take them. But I don't think they would have done it bitterly. I think they would have been like, okay, you seem to know what you're talking about, Brian. Like, we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So anyway, point is, I don't think that Brian strong-armed them into doing any of this material. I mean, also, how many managers do you think would have let them do three originals? That's crazy. Obviously, like, they were not at their best. You know, they had Pete. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the beat was was not exactly... On all the time. The Pete beat. Uh, <laughs> um, Copyright. Yeah. Copyright Pete beat. I'm going to make that as t-shirts. Nobody will buy them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, also, you have to consider, they go into this audition Monday morning after they got in super late. They're probably fucking tired. And they had brought all their, like, shitty, beat up, schlepped, you know, equipment to the DECA audition. And the DECA's like, nah, we're going to, you got to use our equipment. And I'm sure that threw them off big time. It might have been better, but it wasn't what they were used to. Yeah, exactly. And it's not like they, I mean, they didn't really change anything up by the time they got to EMI either. They had to, I was reading, they had to like solder together Paul's amp to like audition for George Martin because they just didn't have money to buy equipment. (laughs) They apparently didn't have money for a while to buy new equipment. So it was just the same crap. They were like schlepping everywhere. So after the audition, Mike Smith said that the tapes were terrific. And the group celebrated with a dinner in London that night. First audition ever for a major record label a month after they first got a manager. Not so bad. Not so shabby. No, no, no. I actually love those tapes. I think they're a wonderful record of where the Beatles were at that time. We would never have had those without this tape. 
hundred percent. And it's funny because you can compare them to like the Beatles six months later, a year later. They grew so much in such a short amount of time. Yeah. And their songwriting grew so much too. I mean, I love the songs that they put on there. Love of the Love is one of my favorite Scylla recordings. Mm, I love Scylla. But hearing Paul McCartney do it is such a different experience. And he probably never would have recorded that himself. No, never. I mean, he did step inside love later during the White Album sessions, a sort of a demo. But yeah, I don't see Love of the Love being another Scylla song that they would have ever really recorded. After weeks of waiting, the Beatles were rejected in February of 1962. And maybe DECA A&R man Dick Rowe said one of the most famous Eat My Word statements ever uttered. He said guitar groups are on the way out. I'm not sure he actually said that. That might be apocryphal. I wonder if it's in writing somewhere. I tried to also, we both did a lot of research on this, but I, yeah, I can't find, that'd be a question for Mark Lewison, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll confirm or deny that at some point, but yeah, I don't know. Like, it just seems too good to be true. I mean, that's a great quote for history. <laughs> no, if <laughs> yeah. he actually did say that. Not for him though. He probably regretted saying that if he did. Well, it's just like Mamie, you know, saying, you know, the guitar is fine for Hobby John, but you never make a living off it. It's just like these amazing quotes that sort of like exist in the ether that Mm -hmm. are just so ironic. Well, the Beatles story is so ridiculously full of kismet that if they said it, it's not surprising, but it's just one more, you know, stranger than fiction sort of thing that you would have said. Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah, it is. The Beatles story, a lot of it is stranger than fiction. Anyway, after they got rejected, John Lennon really thought that was it. It was curtains for the group. He said later, you know, we really thought that was it. We thought it was the end. Fun fact, though, we're talking about the Decca tapes. John and Yoko sent Paul and Linda an acetate of what they thought were the Decca tapes as a Christmas gift in 1971. But actually, it turned out that they were some of the tapes from the BBC. So even John Uh, can't keep it straight. And this is interesting. I had never heard this before. (laughs) What is this about Pete Best? What did he say? Oh, Christ. Okay. So PFS, this is why I don't trust him as far as I can throw him with this. Although I guess we have to make the caveat, PFS was in the room. So, I mean, it could have been true. And he did write this in his autobiography, which is done, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. So PFS made an audacious claim that in the audition room, Brian overstepped his boundary and said something to John about his guitar playing. And then John responded with, quote unquote, I have to make that very clear. You've got nothing to do with the music. You go back and count your money, you Jewish git. Oh, yeah. Um, I know. And I wrote in our in our notes, guys, I wrote, first of all, no. And second of all, no. <laughs> because there's just so much wrong with that. There's no way John, who's like full of fucking nerves, he's like a you know cat in a room full of rocking chairs in this audition room. No way he's going to say that. Number two, no way Brian's going to correct his guitar playing at any time, let alone in front of like DECA people trying to get a record contract. I'd love to ask Pete today, like if that's true. I'm sure he wouldn't contradict himself, but it just seems too crazy. I don't know. I don't discount that John probably said that to Brian in public more than point. once. I mean, but that not w- here. Yeah. yeah, this this even John, I feel like would be nervous enough that he wouldn't be doing that in public. 100% agree. But like, that's one reason why people give that like they didn't get the audition. But I really don't think that ever happened. <laughs> not in that room anyway. God. After that, no, Brian met with Dick Rowe and sales manager Sidney Arthur Beecher Stevens back in London afterwards to try and change their mind. 
It did not happen. Nope. No. Uh, unfortunately, Decca auditioned another band that day, Brian Poole and the Tremolos, with the intention of signing one or the other. So maybe they thought guitar groups were on their way out, but they were kind of hedging their bets just in case. Between the two of them, it ended up that Brian Poole and the Tremolos got the contract. Now, what their audition sounded like, I don't think there's a record of it. What we do know is that the Tremolos got the contract, likely because they already lived in London, so less travel, and they had a pre-existing friendship as one of the A&R men, so that made them easier to work with, easier to promote, easier to deal with. If they were not a success, they're not investing as much. Mike Smith, he would later claim that Dick Rowe sort of came to him and said, okay, choose one or the other. And he said he chose the Tremolos because his optician back in his hometown had mentioned them. And he's like, okay, well, I've heard their name before. Let's do that. And they were better than the studio, he said. Uh, but he, he later said that he did meet the Beatles. And they, quote unquote, gave me a two-finger salute. But that's on par for the course. So at least he's got a sense of humor about it. Anybody out there who performs or auditions for a living, it sucks. So you can get or lose a job and be the Beatles on the recommendation of your optician. Yeah, something that's so wildly out of your control that it's insanity. That happens in all aspects of casting, and it sucks, but it's also, you know, maybe a positive story because don't lose hope, because even the Beatles got rejected for a ridiculous reason. But the Tremolos did okay for themselves. I mean, they had 13 top 40 hits between the 63 and 71, and seven of those was in the top 10. And I'm just equating that for our American listeners who might be familiar with, like, say, The Love and Spoonful, because they had nine top 10 hits in two years. So a little bit more compacted, but kind of on the same level, I would say, sort of, because the Tremolos weren't a huge hit here. I love two of their later songs. One was a cover of Cat Stevens' Here Comes My Baby, and a little known Four Seasons cover, Silence is Golden. And actually, I think the Tremolos version is way better known. Worth a listen. And ironically, when the Tremolos actually hit the UK charts in 1963 with a cover of Twist and Shout. Interesting. They kind of had a similar trajectory in the beginning to the Beatles. So Decca as a company would also go on to turn down Manfred Mann and the Yardbirds. You know, do I diddy. Diddy dum diddy do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they did sign the Stones, which we'll talk about in a second, the Moody Blues, the Zombies, the Applejacks, Dave Barry, Lulu, Alan Price, and more. Funnily enough, they signed the Rolling Stones as a direct reaction to not having sent the Beatles on a tip from George Harrison, no less, hmm. to Dick Rowe. They were judging, I believe it was like talent contest in 63 together up in Liverpool. And George was like, hey, I just saw this band in London called the Rolling Stones. You should check them out. You better bet. Dick Rowe was like, yep, not going to lose out another one. So yeah. they got the Stones. George is also salty enough to just sort of do that tongue-in-cheek. Like, I imagine him doing that very, like, slyly, which just makes me happy. Also, Pete Best would go on to record for Decca as part of Lee Curtis and the All-Stars with, who else? Mike fucking Smith producing. Oh, I guess he saw yeah. something in that beat that he liked. <laughs> well, he did think that Pete was a better drummer than Ringo. Well, that's a debate for another episode. <laughs> yeah, right. But after the audition, Brian got to keep the tapes, obviously, because they're out there now. But he pressed those into acetates at the HMV on Oxford Street in London, which is a very important location for the Beatles, because when he pressed them at the store, I think a publisher overheard some of the demos and was sort of like, hey, I want the publishing rights. And Brian was sort of reluctant. But the publisher, in order to try to 
sway him in his direction and was sort of like, hey, Brian, you know, I've got this guy over at Parlophone called George Martin. I think you should meet him. And kind of the rest is history. Although George Martin did say when he heard the deck of tapes, I wasn't knocked out at all. In defense of those people who turned it down, it was pretty lousy tape. Recorded in a back room, very badly balanced, not very good songs, and a rather raw group. But I thought they were interesting enough to bring down for a test. And the rest is history, I guess. We'll have to talk about this more when uh, we do something about the first recording with George Martin. But Mark Lewison unearthed a very interesting fact, alternative story in his first edition of Tune In, which was that George Martin was kind of forced into accepting the Beatles. Oh, that's right. Because he slept with a secretary and was kind of in the doghouse at EMI. And they said, here, you got to do this. And he, he kind of had to. We'll get into that another day. But that was there. That's one of the most mind-blowing facts of my recent Beatles history. George Martin did what? Yeah. Thank you, Mark <laughs> Lewison. That was a gift I didn't even know I needed, just to have that in my mind. Not 100% sure I want it, but I've got it. Is it bad to say that kind of makes George Martin hotter? I mean, George Martin, <laughs> we could talk about like how hot George Martin is, but like that's... That's amazing. <laughs> well, I like a little Marstein fanfic myself. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, we just, we go off on a tangent about that. Hardcore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen to our episode with Rob Sheffield, if you don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> or just search Tumblr, you'll find it. Or just search, yeah, whatever. <laughs> this story leads me to wonder, because another group did get this contract, what would the Beatles have been if they had gotten the DECA contract. I mean, no one can say that the Beatles would have taken the Tremolo's career path if they were signed to DECA. I mean, they are two different bands. The Tremolo's were great and are still great. They're still performing today. But the Beatles, the Beatles were the Beatles. I mean, they were these massive geniuses. They wrote their own songs from the very beginning. Their talent would have distinguished them from their peers no matter where they were signed. But, I mean, would anything have been different. And really, I wonder, because there were a lot of things that, you know, the arrangement with George Martin and just the chemistry between them did lead them to easily have that I don't know if they would have had with more traditional A&R men. I mean, the first one is, would they have performed their own material? I mean, they heard those three songs. They knew that this was kind of a special thing about the Lennon-McCartney songwriting team is that they were a songwriting team. You know, and they still weren't interested enough to sign them, whereas EMI really wanted the rights to those songs. So, mm-hmm. you know, would DECA have discouraged writing? Would they have quashed that in the Beatles? And if they did, would the Beatles have taken that bullshit? Well, you have to look at probably what would be the closest counterpart. And I don't think there is one to the Beatles. Like you said, they were superstars. They were always going to be superstars. They had this insane combination. It's a reason why there's no been no second Beatles in history. But Decca had the Stones. So let's look at the Stones. Their first few albums were, they had some originals, but a lot of it were blues R&B covers, because that's what the Stones were. I don't know if it was really down to Decca that didn't really give them the freedom to really explore that, or if they, they're just not songwriters like the Beatles are songwriters. So it's hard to make that comparison. Also, they followed the Beatles, which means that they already had this path in front of them. Exactly. So... I think as far as Decca, would the Beatles still been the Beatles? <sighs> I don't I I don't think so personally, just because it's such a different incubator 
for them at that really important part of their career, which is so early. And, you know, that's where George Martin comes in. It's hard to say because we don't really know the producers at DECA as well as we know George Martin and what he did for them. But we do know that, you know, George Martin was open to having them record their own things and that he was interested in being a participant. I mean, from we don't have a recording of this, and I hope one day we do, but the original version of Please Please Me was slow, apparently, more Mm -hmm. like a Roy Orbison song, and George Martin didn't like it. He worked with them to make it what it was, which became a massive hit, and doesn't sound like it was that great. So if the DECA guys heard that, would they have just said, nope, we're not doing that. We're going to do whatever cover we want you to do. George Martin obviously had a history of doing like comedy records. They sort of had this like ingrained repartee from the very beginning where it was sort of kismet. You know, they were sort of like soulmates before they even met. And I think it was almost predestined, which sounds totally hippy trippy, but I don't think there was ever anybody else for them but George Martin. I I can't imagine Decca presenting somebody like that. It just was too perfect. Right. That combination. That's another one of those, it's not apocryphal, but it's stranger than fiction where George Martin says to them after their recording session, is there anything that you don't like? And, and George Harrison pipes up, with, well, <laughs> I don't like your tie. So good. That, that sealed it. Yeah. And somebody who wasn't quite as weird as George Martin, because let's face it, he was delightfully weird, probably wouldn't have dealt with that. But he thought it was funny. So there we go. I think it was a blessing to disguise. They didn't get the deck audition. Obviously, I don't think we would have had anywhere close to the Beatles. I think we can talk about this in a second, the ultimate outcome with Decca, But I think it would have been the Beatles breaking up. I, I don't know. It was just such a... I want to say volatile, but that's not even the word I mean. It was just such a sensitive connection at that point where they were so like in the throes of just emerging as artists. You know, they really needed the perfect way to come out of that and to grow and blossom and to become the Beatles like that we all know and love. I don't see that happening at DECA. It just wasn't that type of label. Yeah. To be fair, EMI wasn't that type of label either. I think it was all George Martin. I really think it was just down to him. Right. Because Parlophone was this little quirky, strange, mostly comedy (laughs) thing. It was weird. It was like the the weird stuff goes to this dude who's super strange. They were like, George, you sit over there with Parlophone. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And another thing about DECA was that would they have replaced Pete had they got signed? Because... As you just said, Mike Smith thought Pete Best was a good drummer. In fact, a better drummer than Ringo went on to work with him later on in his career. Yeah, and he would have been on the contract. So that would have also created a lot of like legal issues, a lot of like, you know, sign seal delivered on Pete Best being a permanent Beatle. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a disaster. Right. So they couldn't have had Brian <laughs> sack him later on. And there was a chemistry aspect to Ringo. And I know Ringo is not your favorite, but... Ringo, I think, is the final piece of that Beatles puzzle, gave them the perfect chemistry. I mean, let's say that the trajectory was almost exactly the same. And a year later, they made a movie. Can you imagine A Hard Day's Night with Pete? Oh, my God. No, that sounds terrible. And yeah, I mean, to be fair, like, no, Ringo's not my favorite. But I do think that Ringo was the only choice. Ringo is that last piece of the puzzle. Like, there's only Ringo for the Beatles. No, but I don't even want to imagine A Hard Day's Night with Pete. (laughs) Are you kidding? There would have been no plot. Ringo was like the best actor out of all that. He was the most endearing. He drove that movie. And no hate to Pete Best. Like, you do you, my friend. But I don't want that in my scope of reality. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And also there's the international component. I mean, if you look at the Tremolos, they 
were not really that successful outside of the UK, despite having a good number of hits there. But would the Beatles have had the same fate? EMI was initially unable to convince its American subsidiary to release the Beatles records, but Brian went off and he did the legwork and he made it happen. And would that have happened with Decca? Could he have done that legwork? Could he have convinced anybody in America to play them? I mean, I would like to think yes, because Brian's brilliant and he's my favorite. But I don't think the Tremolos, so I don't know what they had driving them. I don't know their backstory. I don't know like who their manager was or what their plans were, what their goals were. But obviously, you have somebody like Brian Epstein who is going to go down to London without a contract and say, you need to give my boys a record deal less than a month into his being their manager. Like that's a special type of person that you don't see. So, I mean, it could have been possible. I don't know. Again, like you've got to look at, you know, Decca had the Rolling Stones, but how much of it was up to Decca, you know, their, their international success. I don't know. This is not a Rolling Stones podcast. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Maybe one day. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. You never know. God, because the Rolling Stones, BC, the Rolling Stones. Oh, it doesn't flow as well. Okay. No, nah, nah. I need the alliteration in there. (laughs) All right. So that is the Beatles and Decca. If you haven't heard this, and I'm sure most of you have, but check it out. It's a wonderful historical record of the baby Beatles and Paul Ramone. So cute. So cute. Three good uh, Lennon McCartney, early Lennon McCartney songs that were not recorded on on a standard album. And then go listen to Love of the Love by Scylla, because then you'll get the full picture of that song. Just listen to Scylla. I was going to say, we can't get through a fucking episode without plugging Soul Black. So there's that. I mean, we can't even go into, cause just, you know, we're already just decked out and George Martin out. But, you know, the whole effect that the Beatles maybe being signed to Decca would have had on Brian's other artists. Like, who knows? Because, you know, who knows if Silla would have had a deal? Who knows, you know, about his other artists? Right. Like, Billy Jay, or like who, who knows? Would there have been know? any of those? Because Brian, if let's just say the Beatles broke up, which is a possibility because before they met brian they were about you know they were they're on the verge they were working regular jobs they were kind of giving up and if this had gone sour or they had broken the contract because they couldn't work with pete or because they couldn't do their own songs that would have been it and then would brian have had the cachet and the courage to go say i'm just gonna have a stable of artists and i'm gonna manage a bunch of these acts there wouldn't have been that liverpool uprising in the music industry (sighs) my God, I just love Brian so much. It just makes me love him so much more to like think about this in the bigger context. Yes. Yeah, so thank oh. you, Brian. And thank you, Decca, for not taking this band. Yes. And you know what? It's funny. I was thinking about this today in the context of the new year, how refreshing it is. Because, you know, that was probably a huge thing for them and they were really counting on it. And it was going to be, this is it, guys. We've made it. We've got an audition with Decca. You know, this is going to be the moment it all changes for us and it all comes together and we become big stars. And then it's sort of like, sorry, boys, you didn't get it. And how crushing just soul crushing that must have been, especially when they were on the verge of breaking up and they just hired this manager who's never fucking managed anybody and all this stuff, this crazy disappointment, this insane, like just like heart wrenching blow. And just think it was probably the best thing that could have happened to them. And that's such a good metaphor to take into the new year. Don't you think? I love it. So even if the worst thing ever happens to you, it could be just preparing you for the thing that you need and the thing that you could not have done as well without, because the Beatles could not have done as well without George Martin and EMI. So don't give up and give the world two big old middle fingers. 
Hell yeah, just like Paul on the beach of St. Bars, <laughs> and we brought it full circle. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to BC The Beatles. We hope you had a happy new year and we're so excited about all the wonderful things in the Beatles world in 2024. Until then, as always, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. Please, please give us a rating and review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, slash X, and TikTok. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com too. See you next time. Bye. Bye.